welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We're continuing in our uh, exposition of the Gospel of Luke, and we're in Luke 21, and uh, we're going to take some more time to get a sense of the sweep of the verses that we'll study about Christ's teaching of the last days. I'm going to read again by introduction Luke 21, 7, and then we'll talk about the text as the message unfolds. Let us hear together the Word of God. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Our Father, we come and um, we ask that, as was prayed over the pulpit so well by David a moment ago, that the Holy Spirit come upon the passage and the pastor, that we would have ears to hear and be spiritually taught this marvelous passage as we unfold it in the weeks to come and talk about it today in ways that will help us understand where we're headed. Holy Spirit, speak about things that uh, were designed both to clarify what was coming, difficult and solemn things, but also to give comfort to generations of believers who would read this after you spoke it to the disciples. Clarity and comfort about your plan for the end of the ages. We ask that we would see it clearly and be comforted in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Most serious question that I ever asked anyone in my life occurred on January 30th, 2002. It was a question that I asked a a kind-hearted cardiologist who sat in a nursing staff break room with me on one of the most stunning days of my life. And the question I asked him was, what's wrong with our baby son? He'd been born six days prior, and we'd welcomed his arrival into the world. And and, uh, that day, my mother-in-law was holding him in the kitchen and noticed that things were not right, and he seemed to be in distress. And and a call was made, and he was swiftly transported from our kitchen to, to the emergency room at Sutter General Hospital in Sacramento, California. And then put into the NICU, the newborn intensive care unit. He was in cardiac and respiratory crisis and failing by the hour. My wife, Tina, stayed with him in the NICU as close as she could be. And after a few hours of tests and silence, an old cardiologist uh, took me into a room and And uh, he sat down, and I said, what's wrong with our baby son? And those kind eyes, I'll never forget him. He was tired that night, but still had compassion. And he he took a a flyer from the, the table and turned it over. And on the white space, he took out his pen, and he said, this is what a normal heart looks like. And he drew out that picture and Then he said, this is what your son's heart looks like. And with scratches and darkening patches and narrowings and a giant hole, he showed me what my son's heart would look like. He'd been born with multiple congenital deformities that had gone undetected. That picture's never left my mind. He looked at me and he said, These are very serious deformities. And your son is in the process of dying. 
he may, may be gone by tomorrow morning. And I said, what can be done? And he said, well, it would be a long road. What we have to do tonight is keep him alive. And so he said, there's one thing we can do. We can use a certain drug that will fool his heart into believing it's still in the womb. Part of the problem was that part of the heart closes at the sixth day of life after the being in the womb is over, and this is too complex to explain, but he said if we can push this certain drug instead of hormones into his body, sometimes it fools the heart into believing that they're still in the womb, and this opening opens up just enough for us to, to use it to, 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 to keep blood flowing to the heart and keep the baby alive. And I said, well, let's do it. And he said, you have to understand that this only works half the time. There he was with that picture and all the scratches and the darkenings. And so Tina stayed with him all night long, and I was in a, a small room there. And then I was in the chapel and back to the small room and down to the chapel again and People from the church that we were pastoring at the time were so wonderful, and they gathered, and they came in shifts, and they were with, were with me and prayed with us and worshiped with us. And the next day, the, the intensivist came into the room and had a relieved look on his face, and he said, he's alive. And so we experienced a miracle morning. He was transported a day or so later to Stanford Medical Center for a long, long series of two open heart surgeries and another surgery, both in which, in both of which he almost died. But uh, he's whole, and he's here today. <laughs> Hi, son. <laughs> Hi, buddy. And we give God the glory. But I look back on that conversation just as a human being, and I often wished that that doctor had drawn a second picture for me. He was caught up in my grief, and he'd done this too many times, and he left me with the picture of that broken heart, that distorted heart. I'd often wished he'd taken a little more space on the sheet of paper and drawn a heart that was fixed and, and, and given me the hope that if he gets through the night, these are the things that they can do and this is what his heart will look like if it all works out. I had often wished he'd drawn a second picture. It would have given me a little bit more hope to get through the shock, a little bit more vision to get through the stunning experience that I was in and that we were in together. And I, think, I think about times when you get shocking news and the disciples had received some shocking news. As you know, in this passage, they'd expected Jesus to come and in the final week of Passover to be the conquering Messiah. He'd entered into Jerusalem triumphantly, and they expected him in short order to take all the enemies of Israel and slay them and lead them into the kingdom of God on earth. Instead, anything but that had happened. He'd cleansed the temple and, and pronounced judgment on the city. And in the, the few hours before this portion of the text, he had begun to tell them the judgment was even going to fall on Israel and on the temple itself, and not one stone would be left on another. So uh, that day had been a day of shock for them. They heard and saw a picture that they never expected. They were faced with a sudden shock, and yet Jesus in this passage, as we're going to study over the next few weeks, did not leave them in shock. He didn't hold anything back. He told them solemn truths that would actually span time. But he did tell them in the midst of all of this judgment and darkness that was going to creep over world history, he said, you can lift up your heads, verse 28, and know if you're living through it at that time that your redemption is drawing near and that God was in control of it and that he was going to bring a great, great result for those that know him. In, in this passage, Jesus drew a second picture. He talked about judgment, but he also described God's plan for the times. So he faced their uncertainty and fear with some hope and some insight. 
Now, many people today, believers especially, are looking at what's going on in our society and in our experience of living and the rise of evil in the world and at all kinds of things, and they're entering into kind of a shock. <laughs> Maybe you are. I talk with people about it all the time. They wonder what's happening and what's around the corner with tomorrow and, and what these days ahead could be like, not just for the church, but for the world. And lots of believers are entering into shock today. They're sitting in that little room and, and they've seen a picture drawn from them of a world that's torn and dark, where the world seems to be headed, and they're experiencing uncertainty and fear. But you know what? God has given us a second picture, and it's a picture, yes, of the solemn things that are coming, but also of his planet and all. It's designed to give us insight and hope, and that's what I believe Bible prophecy does. And this is one of the sections in Scripture where Jesus gave his most detailed explanation of the last days. We come to it in our study. Now, many people today look at prophecy, even believers, and say, well, it's very confusing. It's mostly symbolic. There's not much we can know. We don't have much insight. We just have to continue to accept that we're going to suffer more and more as the world darkens. And one day, he's going to come and end it all and make it all right. And if that's how you look at it, I commend that to you, but... I don't teach that way because I believe that Jesus here and in other places in the scripture gave us more to understand about the times of the end that we're both solemn but hopeful. It's a serious question. What about the times of the end? And Jesus gave a sweeping answer. And that's why we're going to study it in detail. Now, last time or two, two Sundays ago, I gave you a sense of the flow of that what the Bible calls the last days, the, the sweep of human history. And many have asked about it. We've included it again in your worship folder. Last Sunday, I talked about the judgment that was going to come temporarily on Israel because of their rejection of Christ as Messiah and the destruction of the temple. We know that happened in history back in A.D. 70. That was the first few verses of chapter 21. Today, I'm going to uh, take a look at the whole passage. Don't have a heart attack. Everybody relax. (laughs) I'm just going to overview it today, and then we're going to start to go into it in detail in the weeks to come. But the disciples ask him a question, verse 7, teacher, they've, they've seen the, the bad picture, the, the distorted drawing, they've gotten the bad news, teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, verse 8, and from verse 8 all the way through uh, the end of verse 36, Jesus gives this long predictive teaching. It is uh, a companion to Matthew 24 and 25, where, give, where Matthew gives us even more detail. And we're going to touch on that in the, as well in the weeks to come. But today, I just want to give you the sweep of this passage so you will understand where we're going as we take it apart in detail later. I'm going to do three things. I'm going to give you the sense of how to look at the passage overall in my Bible teaching view. Many Christians differ a lot over what we're going to study. Second, I'm going to uh, just walk through and, and, and show you the, the, the flow of the verses so you'll understand the, the different teaching Jesus gives in answer to the question in an overview. And finally, I want to talk about the significance of why this should be studied with such intention. Lots and lots of Bible teachers will pass over this chapter in maybe one session because many, many Bible teachers believe there's nothing here for Christians today. I don't believe that. So that's what we're going to do today. Let's first of all look at the sense of the passage together. You'll see all the points on the screen. By the way, we have a church app, and many of you may not know about it. You can download it from uh, the App Store, and right now the notes for this message are on that app. And I don't mind at all if you seem a little bit distracted looking at your phone, as long as I know you're looking at that and not the box scores, I'm fine. But you may want to go through the notes on that, and if you're watching online, you can also see it, uh, I believe, as well. So let's take a look at the sense of the passage, first of all. There's two things that I would say about this. Number one, it begins with a deep question. Verse 7, the disciples had heard Jesus talk about the destruction of the temple. Now, uh, the the more detail on this is in Matthew 24, in verses 1 to 3. This teaching actually took place in two places. The first part of Luke 21 took place at the end of the day as they were walking out of the temple and the disciples turned around and admired the beauty of the temple. And Jesus said, a day is coming when this will all be torn down stone upon stone. 
they were there, and he talked about that, and we saw last week that meant the, the destruction of the temple, which happened in history in A.D. 70. Matthew tells us that they went with him after that up to the Mount of Olives, and in verse 24, they left the temple, and in verse 23, it says in Matthew 24, 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately with a big question. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Luke is a little unclear about just how far Jesus is going to go. Matthew clarifies that when they came, they were not just asking when the temple was going to fall. They were trying to process that. They said, when is your kingdom actually going to come? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? So they were asking a question that went far into the future. Now, uh, they were in shock. The doctor had sat down with them, Dr. Jesus, and drawn them a disturbing picture. And they were trying to figure all this out. They had been told them that in short order, the temple they adored so much would be destroyed and Israel would be judged. Now, this was a big, big shock to them. Because they had expected the things to turn out in a much different way that week. They already believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And they believed the Old Testament taught that the Messiah was a marvelous man, unlike anybody else in human history, not God and man. They didn't quite understand that from the prophecies. But they knew that the Messiah would come as Jesus had come and would teach as Jesus had taught and would do miracles that Jesus had done and would demonstrate that he was the Messiah and he would enter Jerusalem as he had done. And they expected within the few days of that week that the Messiah would dominate and take care of all of Israel's enemies through miraculous power right there in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, perhaps, and then lead Israel into a a beautiful golden future on the earth as the leading nation, and they will be led into their understanding of the kingdom. They were all expecting that to happen within days. And that's why they said, again, we don't understand this whole thing about you saying the temple's going to be destroyed, but we're still believing you're going to bring the kingdom within a few days. We don't get it all. Tell us how you're going to wrap all this up. And so they were looking at this from a mindset that they've been taught by all their teachers. And you can understand if, if, if you look at how they looked at the Old Testament, how they understood this, way back in Isaiah chapter 9, there's a familiar text to us as Christians. We use it as a Christmas passage, but only part of it was a Christmas passage. To them, it was one of their great messianic passages, Isaiah 9 and verses 6 and 7. This is familiar to you, I'm sure. Isaiah said, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. That's what we're familiar with. We believe that's the advent of the birth of Jesus, don't we? But look at the rest. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's what they thought Jesus was about to do after he entered Jerusalem. Because that's what Messiah was going to do. They focused on verse 7. Somebody is coming, the Messiah, and he's going to take all the enemies of Israel out, and he's going to rule the world through Israel, and from Jerusalem, he's going to be of the throne of David, and Jesus was descended from David, and they were all looking forward to this earthly kingdom. And they thought it was, it was going to happen very quickly. That's why they kept arguing a couple nights later in the upper room about who was going to get to be able to be next to Jesus when his kingdom came. Remember the story. So that's what they were looking for. Well, Jesus was beginning to deliver some shock to their system by saying, that will come, but not yet. You see, they didn't read Isaiah further very clearly. They got all excited about the end of verse 6 and the first part of verse 7. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to govern the world and there's going to be universal peace and Israel will be at the heart of it and all our enemies will be defeated. That's what we want. But they didn't understand that Isaiah said between the beginning of verse 6 and the rest of this, yes, a child will be born and a son would be given. But that son had to stop at a cross before he came back with a crown. They didn't understand that Isaiah 53, 5 happened in the middle between verse 6 and 7. 
What does Isaiah 53, 5 say? When Messiah comes, verse 5 in Isaiah 53, he'll be wounded for our transgressions. He'll be crushed for our iniquities. Upon him will be the chastisement that brings us peace. And with his stripes, we're healed. The Lord is going to lay all the iniquity of, of lost people on Jesus, on the Messiah. They missed that part. They were all about the future triumph, but they didn't understand the suffering that would come before it all happened. So, really, they missed the, 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 they were focused on the mountain of victory, but they missed, missed the valley that had to come before it. And so they were in shock, and they asked the only question they can, well, tell us more about how your kingdom really is going to come then. It's in essence, is what they were saying. And what Jesus does is we go back to Luke 21, and, and in Matthew 24, the same way, he begins to tell them there is, there is a lot that's going to unfold in the days before I come back and become king of the world. He would remind them later that day and the next night that there's a cross coming before that crown ever arrives. I'm heading to the cross. I'll be betrayed. I'll be tormented. I'll be taken to the cross, but I will rise. There's an ascension coming too. But then I'm going to be moving across the world with my gospel. I'm going to bring judgment to Israel for their rejection of me, though it's temporary, it will be severe. And yes, the temple will be destroyed and all these things will happen. But then I'm going to start building my church. I'm going to start drawing people to me from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And I'll be rescuing people from their lostness. That's what my cross is going to accomplish. But as I go rescuing, this world will, come, will go ripening in its wickedness and its hatred against my father. And that ripening will increase and man's sin will grow. And to the point where as I'm rescuing a people called my church out of this, man's sin will be so great that the judgment of God will, be, will begin to fall. And in the last part of the last days, my judgments are going to come. My father is going to bring great judgments, which he describes in this chapter. And those judgments are going to culminate in my visible return as the king. My visible return will come, but only after a long stretch of history that you do not understand. So they come to him with this deep question, but they really misunderstand their own question they asked it in the right way, but they had a totally different understanding. They said, when will, be, will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And that's where Jesus then moves in the verses after that. And he tells them some things that they can look for to, to know that the time of his return as king is getting nearer. And if it, within his teaching are some signs, not just one sign, but many signs. So I want you to understand why the passage is in the context is it's in. And all the teaching we're going to go through in the next few weeks is Jesus' longest answer to any question he was ever asked, right? And I'm trying to help you understand what the question was. What will be the sign of your returning as the king of the world? What will be the signs that we know that the future is about to close with your return? And so he draws them the picture. And verse uh, chapter 21 of Luke, beginning at verse 8, all the way through verse 36, basically contains six signs and two lessons. We'll get to that in a minute. Now, I said not only does this passage start with a deep question, the second thing I'll mention under the sense of the passage is that there, this is a very debated answer. I mentioned this to you. Many sincere, biblically committed Christians differ over how this passage should be taught. Many Bible teachers you, you hear and respect, perhaps. I won't go into any of that. Many sincere believers, in fact, they look at prophetic teaching in general, and many of them today believe we can understand very little about the times in the future. We can understand very little of what Jesus taught or the prophets really meant, and it really doesn't matter that much in the big picture anyway. We know that the times are dark, the church is supposed to suffer and serve Christ. And when he decides to come back, he'll come back at a time of his choosing and make all things right. That's all we can know, and that's all we need to know. Now, some people look at this passage, and, and uh, 
Like I said, they don't believe there's much here for Christians. There, there's three different ways to approach it. By the way, I don't believe that we simply need to know that we're going to suffer more and serve him more and he'll suddenly someday return. I do believe that there is more that we can know than that. There are more markers in all that's to come that he's given us to let us know what's happening and to have a hope of his plan in it. Now, there's three perspectives the Bible teachers use when they look at Luke 21 or Matthew 24 and 25. Jesus Christ's own teachings about the times of the end. The first is some of them look at this, everything in Luke 21 from verse 8 all the way through verse 36, all these, these descriptions, they look at it as historic. In other words, everything you see in Luke 21 already happened. It's already happened in history. And it happened when the temple was destroyed by the legions of, of, uh, of Titus in 70 A.D., which I taught you last week. They say not only did that happen in 70 AD to fulfill Christ's pronouncement of judgment, that's when all these other events in, in Luke happened. All these signs, all these events, everything described here, it already happened in AD 70. And in fact, most of the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 1, pretty much all the way through the end of chapter 18, already also happened. Many believe that Jesus has actually already returned. But he returns spiritually. He hadn't returned visibly. He returns spiritually. And through the church today, he's increasing his rule over the world through his people. He's building his kingdom invisibly and in a very, very significant sense. One day he'll come back visibly to wrap it all up. And they'll tell you, when you look at Luke 21... None, nothing in Luke 21 is applicable to believers today. It all happened in the past. I don't hold that view. There's another uh, set of interpreters that look at this, and they look at essentially most of what, ha what you see here in Luke 21. If it wasn't in the past, it's symbolic. It is allegorical. It, it is symbolic language that talks about spiritual meanings and they're not to be found in history or in human events. They're to be taken symbolically, not literally. They have spiritual meanings to them. What are the spiritual meanings? Well, the people that have this viewpoint disagree, and you can understand that. If something's symbolic, then it's pretty much a fielder's choice as to what the symbols could mean. One interpreter says they mean this. Another set of interpreters say, no, they mean that. And there's, so there's a, a patchwork of, of assumption here. They'll look at this passage and say there's not much here to teach, but there's because mostly it's symbolic of what? Well, here's our, here's our interpretation of the symbols. You be the judge. We simply know that Christians are going to suffer in this age. We're called to serve him no matter what. And one day he'll return at a time of his choosing and make it right. By the way, many of you look at the book of Revelation in the same way too. That virtually all symbolism of events that we cannot understand or they don't relate, relate, relate to real issues, real experiences in human time among human beings. Well, I don't look at it that way. I said there's three perspectives. There's the historic perspective. There's the symbolic perspective. And I am going to teach you from what you might call the literal perspective. I'm going to teach it as I believe Jesus used the words. He used normal words to describe remarkable things. But I'm going to use it using what's a method of Bible interpretation called the grammatical historical method which means that we take the plain sense of Scripture as it speaks. We look at the use of language as it is normally used. We take a look at the grammar that's used, the nature of the language that's used, and the context in which it was teach, taught or, what, or it, that it refers to, and we look at it in that normal, literal sense. This is the way the Scripture has been classically been interpreted since the beginning of the church. And I'm going to teach it to you in that that sense. And when I look at it that way, chapter 21 of Luke has much to say. 
You might disagree with me about the details of how I interpret uh, what it has to say, but it has much to say. And it has much to say, had much to say not only to the disciples who heard it in that evening on the Mount of Olives and began to work it through, and, and for the church today, and for believers yet to come in ages when history unfolds in an even darker way after we're gone if the Lord tarries. You see, I cannot believe that Jesus would take his disciples with that urgent request about what was going to happen with an urgent question, and then spend all this time and all these verses and all this detail telling them something they would never understand. I struggle with the symbolic interpretation of Scripture. Why would he tell them in such depth and detail things he never expected them to understand? Mystery, allegory. I think there's more. I think you get my point. This is not a point of division. It's not a point of criticism. It's not a point of fellowship. But it's a, it is very important in terms of how we look at, at the Scripture. It's an issue of interpretation. And that is important. And that's why I wanted you to know how I'm going to teach it over the next few weeks. Good Christians differ, but this is how I'm bringing it to you. So that's the first dimension. Let's go to the second. Let's take a look at the sweep of the passage. As we look at this and its normal language, as we look at it in a literal way, as we take the normal means of interpreting words and images and apply them to this passage, it certainly sweeps through a lot of territory and a lot of predictions, some of which are disturbing, others of which are comforting, and we know that it must span time. This all didn't happen when the temple fell in A.D. 70. No, it, it really covers quite a bit of time. Now, there was a, an, an insert you've asked about. It's, it's back in your worship folder. And if you want to take it out for a minute, I'll give you my opinion about what Luke 21 covers. Uh, there's some description of the, the times of the tribulation, the, the rapture of the church, which I taught you a few weeks ago, and everything on the back. Don't go there. Uh, go to the, the timeline. And this is obviously not inspired, and it's not perfect, but but it's, it's the best visual rendition I can give you about what, what I believe is taught about the flow of, of history. And I taught you at the cross here, there is the, the life, death, resur- crucifixion, resurrection of the Lord Jesus, his ascension into heaven, and the beginning of the church age. That's the age we're in now, what I talked to you about, a world ripening in judgment, but God rescuing a people for his name out of this, and that's going to happen until what I believe to be the next great biblical event in history I taught you a couple weeks ago, which is his invisible return for his church, known as the rapture. The return of Jesus will, will have two phases to it, an invisible return for the church. He comes in the clouds to take his bride with him, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, other places, and the church will be suddenly taken with him. When that happens, happens shortly after that will be a time of worsening judgment as man's evil ripens judgment begins to fall from god described in revelation chapter 6 and onward and it is a seven-year period of time known as the tribulation the church will be with christ in heaven but the world will begin to receive its judgment and that judgment will escalate all the way through the seven years until finally Christ visibly returns. That's the second visible coming. He came for his church invisibly. Then he's going to return with his church and he will come as the king of kings and he will establish that kingdom the disciples wanted to know about. He will judge the people on the earth at that time, and then he'll set up a 1,000-year millennial kingdom on a partially renewed heaven and earth with Israel at the centerpiece, Jerusalem as the governing city. And that's the kingdom of the, the son of David that was prophesied in Isaiah that all the Jews are looking forward to, that these guys asked him about that night. Jesus said, that's when it's going to come. And then after that, he'll judge all men and women at the great white throne of judgment. The earth will be completely destroyed. A brand new heavens and earth will be created, and we will go into what's known as eternity. You can see we'll go into eternity with him. Those who've rejected his love through Christ will head into eternity in hell, and that's the story. Now, the reason I bring this up to you is Luke 21, verses 8 to 36, cover a lot of ground. How much of this ground is covered in Christ's teachings here and in Matthew 24? I would say this teaching talks about events that are happening from the beginning of the church age when the disciples first started their ministry all the way through 
the tribulation period, and it culminates in the visible return of Jesus. All I'm going to teach you in the next few weeks covers basically this half. That's the sweep of time I believe Jesus is giving us insight on. So I wanted you to know where the passage lands in the process of time. I hope that helps. So you can tuck that away now. Don't read it. Tuck it away. Go back to the passage. You've got Luke 21 in front of you. Maybe a paper Bible open. Maybe you've got your electronic version open. I'm actually going to show you the sweep of the passage, and I'm going to give you the bullet points that I'm going to preach on from the next few weeks. They say, what will be the sign, verse 7, when these things are about to take place? They didn't know how to ask the question any other way. They didn't really understand the kingdom the way it really was. But they just said, tell us what the signs are going to be of this ominous prediction you've made. And here Jesus turns the piece of paper over and he draws them a clearer picture. He not only tells them about one sign, but in my opinion, he gives them six signs that they will see or that that history will show. They won't be alive through all of it. Some of it will begin happening in their lifetime. Some of it will be in church history after they're gone. Some of it will be in the tribulation period after the church is gone. And all of it will culminate when Jesus visibly returns, basically when history's gone. It's all here. Look at your Bible. Luke 21, begin at verse 8. Sign 1, Jesus talks about, and we're going to learn together in the next few weeks, is that one of the signs that history is rolling and judgment is coming is that there will be spiritual deception and deceivers. Verse 8, and he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. So the first of the signs that will occur, that we'll study, is a growth in spiritual deception and deceivers as history rolls closer to his great return. And we've seen that over time, haven't we? We've seen many false messiahs and deceptive false teachers. They were the great vexing point of the church in the early days, as you read in the epistles. They've always been part of the church's life throughout history, sometimes in massive ways. I think I'll be able to prove to you as we study this that we have more false teaching and false teachers in our times than at any other time. And the Bible certainly tells us that all this is going to roll from the early time that the disciples preached and taught and fought against it all the way through the tribulation. And the tribulation, particularly the last half, is going to have the greatest false teaching and deception the world has ever known, led by one individual, the Bible tells us, is called the false prophet. So Jesus, in verse 8, tells us one of the signs is going to span thousands of years. You're going to see this more and more and more. And the more you see spiritual deception, the closer we are to his return. Second sign, verse 9. Sign 2, I'll be teaching you, will be a growth in human and natural upheaval. He says in verse 9, when you hear of wars and tumults, upheavals, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will, will, will not be. And then he goes on in verse 10 to talk about nations rising against nations. Verse 11, great earthquakes, great famines, great, great pestilences or plagues, and terrors and great signs from heaven. So you see the second sign is that there will be increasing human and natural upheaval. I think we can say that there's dimensions that I'll teach over the next few weeks in which maybe we may be even seeing that rise in our times. More about that. But Jesus is seeming to indicate here that all these things are going to start to roll through human history. Long after you're gone, guys, they're going to roll in even bigger levels. And in the time of the end, when the tribulation is upon us, there is going to be human and natural upheaval, wars, pestilences, and terrors like never before. Maybe you've been involved in something where you just dread what might happen to you in a work situation or a physical situation with a spouse that, where illness is coming or there's a doctor's report or whatever, and you don't know the outcome yet, and it's weeks away from you knowing. What's it like to wake up in the mornings? Huh? Did you sleep much? No. You wake up and your heart's beating. Maybe you're having nightmares toward the end of the, of the night and end of the morning because you know that something momentous may be coming. It's called morning terror. I've experienced it. Morning terror for people alive during the tribulation will be indescribable because every morning they'll be waking up to a new terror as the final years and the final days end. Jesus said, oh, you'll see this rising from your time till that time. Sign three, verse 12. 
And all the way through verse 19, we won't read it all, of course. He said, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. And then he goes through this long description of just how deep the persecution will be. They'll be put before synagogues and rulers, and they were in the book of Acts. And the church ever since then has endured persecution in different waves. But Jesus seems to to indicate here that the waves will grow greater and it will come to a point in verse uh, verse 17 that the entire world will be filled. It says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. There, there seems to be an increasing of persecution over the true believers that will start the day the apostles start their ministry and will roll throughout history and grow greater and greater and greater. And I will prove to you that that's probably what's happening today. And it certainly will happen in the time of the tribulation where believing one morning will mean losing your life the next. Six signs. Spiritual deception and deceivers arise in human and natural upheaval as well, arise in persecution as well. Here's the fourth sign, a future attack on Jerusalem. He shifts now. I believe he vaults over a lot of history in that, but that's my opinion. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And he talks about the fall of Jerusalem in the times. This is not AD 70, because there's all kinds of other events tied to it, like signs in the heaven and the earth, and all kinds of other things that never happened in AD 70. No, Jerusalem would be rebuilt. It would survive. Israel would return, just as the Bible prophecies in Daniel and Revelation tell us. Israel would come back to the land, and it would be a a viable entity in the times of the future. And the nations of the world will be gathered against it by the one who hates God and Israel the most, the Antichrist in the tribulation period, particularly in the last half. And the Antichrist's great objective will be to destroy the Jerusalem that reflects the, the, the God of the Bible. And all the armies of the world will be gathered in a final onslaught. And Jesus says, when you see that, know that the clock has really almost reached midnight. That's yet to come. So you can see he's moving all over that, all through that timeline. Sign number five, at the same time you see that kind of animosity and and the movement of the Antichrist through human history, dominating human government and everything else, there'll be another sign, and that will be sign five. The distress in heaven and on earth will grow intense and supernatural, verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. He's talking there about the great judgments poured out in the last part of the tribulation from heaven's throne room, the bold judgments that will fall on the earth, incredible disruption in the heavens and in nature and incredible human suffering where a third of the earth will die and on and on it goes. Jesus says there's always been distress, but that will be a supernatural distress. Remember I said the world is ripening for judgment and God is rescuing a people. When God's finished and his people are rescued, then the ripening of the world is going to increase and he has no other choice but to judge it finally and completely. That's what the tribulation is all about. One final sign. Sign six is verse 27. At the very end of that, the apex of it all will be, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. What's that? That's the final sign. Basically, what's the sign of Jesus' physical coming? He's the final sign. (laughs) Those alive on the earth, the nations will look and see him and quake in fear because they know he's the one they've rejected, and he's now come as the Lion of Judah, the conquering king, and he's going to judge them. The whole world will see the final return of Jesus. And so Christ here moves through all of the future history that was before these disciples, and I believe told them these are the things that if you're living in those times, different believers living in those times can look to this text and understand that if you're going through these things, you will see that my time and my arrival is coming. Now, personally, I believe the church will be here for some of this, but not the worst of this. I believe the Scripture teaches that he will come for his beloved. He will not take his beloved blood-brought bride and allow her to be battered with a judgment she doesn't deserve. I personally think but right around verse 17 between verses 16 and 17, 
the church is taken. All will suffer before then. But I believe that he's going to take his church. And the future attack on Jerusalem and the falling of great judgment through the tribulation and the final sign of the sun, we won't be here to see that. We'll be in heaven. We will see one part of it, and that is the final return because we're coming back with him. That's my teaching. Now he looks at these disciples and he speaks to them in a kind of editorial sense as representative of all believers that will go through this through all time. There is the sweep of the passage. In the weeks to come, we're going to take a look at each of the signs a little bit more carefully, and I'll, I'll do exposition of the passage in more detail. But I, I've, there's so much controversy about this today. There really is. You may not understand it. In my world as a ministry professional, as a Bible teacher, I run into it all the time. I ran into it this week with, with a person that just came into my world and uh, asked me what I was preaching on this week. Well, that's a dangerous thing to ask me. And when I tell them sometimes, and I talk about the times in the end, and I talk about all that Jesus said, oh, man, I'm, I'm viewed at as kind of cowardly and kind of simple-minded. Too cowardly to just want to serve God no matter what happens, and too simple-minded to take the Bible literally for what it may say. Anyway, you need to understand how I'm teaching it and where we're going, and I hope I've given you that picture frame today. Here's the last thing. Some... Uh, of you might be um, thinking that, wow, I've never heard this taught before, and this seems a little um, intense, but it also really goes into detail and in, into in in prophecy. Are we really, should we really be paying that much attention to it? Or the modern Christian mindset, really, in the majority of evangelicalism today, is, is there's not much we can know, there's not much we need to know. Let's just serve Jesus and suffer if we have to. And I agree with all that. I'm in total agreement with that. Except that, no, I think as we suffer, we can have comfort from some things we do know. And we can understand that he has a plan of the ages. He has a sovereign plan in all of this. And when we go through some of these things, there's another picture on the paper that can give us some perspective and some hope. There is a significance to Bible prophecy. This is what I say as I close. If you don't think Bible prophecy is significant, I've mentioned two things to you. Number one, prophecy is a major part of the Bible sitting on your lap or in your device. Why would God put all that information there for his people through thousands of years of inspiration of Scripture and not mean for you to understand it and not mean for it to have any meaning or impact on us? That's beyond me, because my God is a God who speaks. And when he speaks, he expects to be heard and understood. There's a, there's a law of Bible study called the law of proportion. Basically, it, it means when you see the amount devoted to a topic in Scripture should drive the amount of attention you give it as a Bible student. Does that not make sense? Well, 27% of the Bible has been calculated was, when it was written at one time, prophetic. Some of those prophecies have been fulfilled, mostly Old Testament prophecies and about Israel and about the return, the, 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 the first uh, years of the life of Christ on earth, his life, death, and resurrection, hundreds of them, but many remain unfulfilled. In Old Testament, you know how many verses are in your Old Testament? 23,210. That's the King James. Out of those 23,210 verses, 6,641 of them are prophecy either fulfilled already or yet to be fulfilled about the times of the end. Why would God give you a book where 25 to 30% of it you can never understand and doesn't have a point in your life anyway? I struggle with that. New Testament, you say, well, the New Testament's different. Oh, 7,914 verses in your New Testament, 1,711 of those are prophetic. And these relate to the times of the end and the return of Jesus. Did you know that 23 out of the 27 New Testament books teach specifically about the return of Jesus? And yet people say, ah, there's not much we can know, and we don't really don't need to focus on that. Let's focus on doing good now. Well, wait a minute. 23 of the 27 New Testament books actually have a different emphasis. Let's think about this. 
Jesus taught on his second coming, predicted it, and touched on it 21 times in the four Gospels. I would say that if it's on his mind, it should be on my mind. And finally, we're told in the New Testament, or in the Bible rather, to be ready for the second coming of Christ 50 different times. And so I would say that what we're going to touch on and how we're going to look at it is something God wanted us to see. Almost 30%. Wow. Would you like to sit down with a doctor who went through medical school but only attended two-thirds of his classes? (laughs) And every class he only read two-thirds of the book? So you're sitting down with him and you've got some problems here and and he looks at you and he says, well, you know, I, I know you've got some problems, but I only studied from this high up. So, hey, I'm sure it'll work out for you. Well, I need the whole counsel of God, don't I? Isn't that what a pastor is supposed to teach you? Well, I digress. Here's the second thing I'd say, if you don't think there's a relevant point to this. Prophecy brings a blessing when you study it. I close with Revelation chapter 1. Full of prophecy, would you not say? You can say it's symbolic or dismiss it, but oh my goodness. Revealed to the Apostle John, and when it was revealed to John, he was told this, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear. I'm reading aloud, opening it, teaching, giving you a sense of it. You're hearing, just like The the book of Revelation was put in a scroll and it was sent to all the churches in John's ministry and they all had a pastor get up a Sunday after that and read it to the church. He said, don't ignore it. Understand it. Read it. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. How do you keep something you don't understand? How do you keep something that's not relevant? How do you keep prophecy? You understand it the best you can, and you take from its truth both warning about the future for the lost and comfort about the future for the found. And that's what prophecy does. And when you have warned those without Christ, you can be at rest. And when you know that God is in control and even these difficult things he has a good plan in, you can be at rest and therefore you are blessed. And don't forget what he says, for the time is near. Now the Apostle John said the time is near. The time of what? The time of Christ wrapping up human history. The time of him establishing the kingdom. Do you think it's nearer now? Some of you guys have been watching that Time Traveler series too much. No, time happens in literal years over literal spaces, and you don't get it back. Of course, it's nearer. And so let's go get a blessing. That's what I would say in the times and the weeks ahead. Let's go get us a blessing. 